The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Wednesday, November 14th, 2018. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Who can beat Trump in 2020? I know, I know. We're what? Six days after one election? Some of the races remain uncalled? Let's look ahead. In fact, if we're 538, let's do a draft. It's time for our first 2020 primary draft since the midterms. We've done this a number of times on the site. We've done it once on the podcast before, but we're going to see how much our idea of which candidates Democrats will rally around has changed, particularly since the midterms. The question, we always squabble about this. So these are the parameters. You ready? The question we're trying to answer is, who is most likely to win the 2020 Democratic presidential primary? If we're on Bill Maher's panel, we'll get asked this. Everybody answer this. Who is the best shot that the Democrats have for 2020? I know it's only three days after the election, but I want everyone to give me your choice or who you, what you think should happen. I've been asked this question six times at parties, and the only party I've been to since Election Day is one-year-old Ashton Cantor's, who has never known a world without Trump as president. I have no actual answer in terms of actual candidates, though betting markets have seen a cratering in certain bald, blue-eyed Italians in well-tailored suits today. Luckily, I have brown eyes and buy off the rack. But I do have one insight, one insight for you. So let's say we think of all the candidates who ever get mentioned as answers to this question. Your Bernies, your Bidens, your Bookers, your Bettos, your Kirstens, your Kamalas, your Klobuchars. Oh, you don't know about the Klobuchar Overture? Oh, it's out there. But here's my insight. The answer is just as likely quote, any of them, as it is none of them, as it is a specific one of them. Now, I may be wrong. There is a chance that should America pick the wrong one of these candidates, that candidate could be so disastrous in a way that wasn't foreseen that that candidate will just hand the election to Trump. You know, who knew Montana Governor Steve Bullock had a powerful glue sniffing habit? And what bad luck to make him the nominee. And then the day of the convention, he starts huffing from the podium. Terrible. But if I had a choice between, all right, put your money mic on any, none, or a specific right one, I would take either any or none before I took one specific one. The equivalent question from the world of sports is, asking who can beat Donald Trump, it's just like asking who can get a hit off San Diego Padre Corey Spangenberg. Now, you may be thinking, but probably aren't, wait, Corey Spangenberg is the second and third baseman. What's he doing pitching? And the answer is sometimes in a blowout, a position player will be given the ball and say, you pitch. And Corey Spangenberg did it twice last year, and he didn't do well. We didn't think he'd do well. Here's how he did. He got six outs. In other words, he pitched two innings, and he gave up four hits. So his batting average against is actually 400. His uh, on-base percentage wound up being higher. But let's talk about 400. So if we say, who can get a hit? off a guy who has a batting average against a 400, but we really don't know anything about him. And also, I said to you, the universe of candidates who we're going to pick from, we don't have any statistics on them either. Because we might think we know a lot about politics, but really politics is a game of exceedingly small sample sizes. So in baseball, 
Players get up to bat hundreds of times in a, in a season, thousands of times over a career. We have a really, really, really good idea how those players are on average. We call it a batting average. And if we wanted to be really clever, we might say, oh, Corey Spangenberg is a, uh, is a lefty. Let's pick a good righty hitter against him. But in our analogy, we know one thing, that there's one guy, he's maybe good at baseball, but not a professional pitcher. He, in his two innings pitched, allowed four hits. And we're choosing from a universe of people who might be good at baseball, but we're not allowed to keep stats. We just maybe looked at them a few times in one or two games. Maybe Jose Altuve had an off game. Maybe J.D. Martinez did. Those would be the two best choices. By the way, if we knew everything that we now know to who would get a hit against Corey Spangenberg. In politics, we only have a few elections. We get a sense of who we think are good candidates from seeing them run, but we only get two or three, you know, or in the case of Joe Biden, 413 results. We have very few results to go on. So we're kind of picking blind. And it turns out that maybe if we were really good scouts, we could see the sweetness of a Jose Altuve swing and put that guy up against Spangenberg. But in reality, we're pretty much picking blind. Now, the real answer is, who can get a hit against Corey Spangenberg? Probably every qualified major leaguer. Although luck could intervene and then that major leaguer wouldn't get a hit against Corey Spangenberg. And you know what we'd say then? We'd say, oh, that Corey Spangenberg, all the experts said he had no chance of getting the other player out, but he did. Shows what we know, shows what 538 knows. The question about who can run is a fun discussion. And I guess there's a right answer in that one will run, and then we'll get the referendum on if that one could be Trump or couldn't. Although what we really will get is a result that either that person wins or that person loses. And usually when that person loses, we say, oh, that wasn't the right person to face Trump. And if that person wins, we say, thank God we chose that person. You know, unless you're a big fan of Trump, the Corey Spangenberg of politicians. It is fun to talk about which politician occupies the right lane, which one specifically neutralizes Trump by his or her politics or his or her style or his or her section of the country or his or her track record. But really, we're going on supposition and projection. And with that all said, I would go with Jose Altuve for president and Elizabeth Warren to go opposite field off Spangenberg. On the show today, I spiel an endorsement of the multiple follow-up question that doesn't land you in the naughty chair. But first, somewhat surprisingly, Amazon's proposed move to New York and Virginia has become a big national story. People are against it. And Trump's not even involved. Well, I mean, you know, it's America in 2018. He's kind of involved. He hates Jeff Bezos and he wants to redo the post office and taxes. Anyway, this one's really not about Trump. So yesterday I spieled in support of the move. And today I engage with a worthy opponent, a slate colleague who doesn't actually oppose me. But then again, Henry Grubar is a fine fellow who is up to throw down. The other day on this program, I referenced a municipal incursion of cash and jobs that I was for, the other day being yesterday, the municipality being New York, and the cash and jobs coming from the company Amazon. Amazon coming to New York and Northern Virginia, good thing on balance. 
Some people disagreed. One of those was Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And when I took a mild, mild issue with some of her points, the people came for me. This is one of the characteristics of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez criticism. It engenders a lot of antipathy. So let me now make clear my stance on this issue. On that, I think it is good when a company wants to bring 25,000 jobs paying over $100,000 to your municipality. Now, there are good ways for this to happen and less good ways, but in general, it's good. And let me also say this. There are people out there protesting it, and I support them. Not just their right to protest, but they're angry about it, make it known. And also, from a negotiation standpoint, it really helps if you could point to the fact that the locals are up in arms. Maybe Amazon should give a little more than they were planning to give in the first place. And the last thing I'll say is, I am a fan of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. You know, if you look at her tweets, she didn't come out and say this is wrong. She says this raises a lot of issues. So that's also good for negotiation. So do you understand? Do you understand what I'm saying and what I'm for and what I'm against? I hope so. Now I'd like to bring in a slate writer for a segment we haven't done in a while because everyone here hates me. It is called Mike Debate Slate. The writer is Henry Grabar. And Henry has been covering the Amazon issue. He's been out at protests in Long Island City. Henry writes about cities and architecture and uh, economic development. This is absolutely his sweet spot. And I'm sure in a second he's going to disclose the fact that he's an Amazon Prime member. Hello, Henry. How are you? I'm good, Mike. How are you? Are you an Amazon Prime member? No, but I'm a native New Yorker, so I feel a great (laughs) stake in this debate. Yes. So before we even, this is called Mike Debate Slate, and I've taken the time to lay out my position, which is on net, I think it's good, though there are certainly good criticisms of it. I'm going to kind of force you in the position to be the anti-Amazon voice, but let us be clear, that is not exactly your position. You might be asked to articulate the anti-Amazon stance, but what is your position, your Henry's position? I think my position is that I agree with you that 25,000 high-paying jobs introduced over the course of 10 years to the nation's largest metropolitan area is a good thing on balance. New York is very dependent on income taxes. We happen to be on the longest run of private sector job growth since World War II. It necessary now, but I think that when the next recession comes... Uh, and the entire financial sector is replaced by robots and algorithms, we might be happy to have these people paying taxes. And I don't buy the comparisons with Seattle and San Francisco. I really do think that people don't understand what it means when we say we're giving them a tax break, we're giving them a subsidy, we're giving them a tax credit. I think that, I, I don't know, I'm sure just listeners don't fall into this group, but it seems like a lot of people, and maybe even the majority of New York Post, Readers think that there's going to be a budget item in the state where Amazon gets some money. They don't realize that what we're talking about is a company comes in and they're going to pay to the state. I'm not even talking about personal taxes of the workers. They're going to pay to the state billions of dollars. I think the number that Cuomo trotted out was $27 billion. And because of the, quote, deal or subsidies or breaks, we have to say, you know, without those breaks, it would have been $30 billion. That's what we should be debating. I can't believe they're coming in and going to give to the state, you know, pay to the state, $27 billion instead of the $30 billion we could have got if they paid full freight. But the problem is, who's to say they would have paid full freight if we didn't give them the break? 
Right. So that's the really challenging issue. And I agree with you that there's a large misconception about this having just come from the anti-Amazon protest. What were the protests? Well, people say, why are we giving this money to Amazon? Let's use this money to rebuild the school in my district. And it's like, okay, we don't have the money yet. Yeah. We don't have the money until Amazon moves here, creates the jobs, pays the taxes. And that's where the tax break comes in. Right. If that argument were, why don't we use the extra $3 billion between Cuomo's projected $27 billion and the $30 billion they would have paid without the 1.5% tax breaks? Why don't we use that $3 billion, that hypothetical future $3 billion to rebuild the subway? Again, I'd say, fine, but we can use the $27 billion to build some stuff too. Yeah. So I think the, the question you have to ask is, Would Amazon have moved here anyway? Mm -hmm. And could the state and the city have driven a harder bargain and gotten a better deal? So what do you know about that? Well, the first thing I'd say is that Cuomo is notorious for giving tax breaks to companies. Usually in upstate. Usually (laughs) upstate, but in the city too. I think they have undersold New York for a long time and they continue to do so. I think part of the evidence for that is that you had gigantic subsidy offers coming in from states like Pennsylvania and New Jersey. We're talking- $4.6 $4.6 billion in Pennsylvania, $7 billion in New Jersey. I think $8 billion in Maryland. Right. Yeah. So that gives you a sense that this is not a decision motivated by where they can get the best deal. Amazon executives are not like Amazon customers shopping among 10 identical staplers and looking for the cheapest one. But let me give you a pushback on that. Doesn't that, in fact, those stats that you just cited, isn't that to Cuomo's credit? I know it's a Cuomo and de Blasio joint decision, but- The fact that he didn't give those huge subsidies, he knows what New York has going for it. And they gave a subsidy, if all the numbers are right, of an eighth of the value of Maryland. That's at least an indication that maybe he's playing the game right. Okay. Well, then, uh, but but then on the other side, there's Washington, D.C. I mean, well, we're really talking about Northern Virginia. And the state of Virginia's subsidies for Amazon are less than the ones that New York offered. So I think that, you know, on the one hand, you have to understand this occurring in this uh, subsidy war in which Amazon holds all the cards. None of the bidders can see what the other uh, states have, have bid. Yeah. Um, literally, they have to sign non-disclosures. Literally, right? we're in the dark. Yeah. Uh, so we're at an enormous disadvantage here. But you look at Virginia, and I think they're subsidizing Amazon to the tune of twenty dollars or $22,000 a job, and yeah. ours is closer to 48000 And so the question you have to ask if you're Cuomo is to set up shop in a great location in the largest city in the country, in the financial capital of the country, the cultural capital of the country – why should we be subsidizing them twice as much as they're getting to move to a lame office park in Northern Virginia? Okay. Um, when you say 48000 ahead, is that over a decade? Where? What's that number? Yeah, I think that's over the time of the jobs being created, which is the timeline is a decade. A decade. So, so you could say- And you, when we say the billion and a half subsidy, is that over a decade? It's complicated. There's a job subsidy. There's a construction subsidy. Grant. So New York State is essentially paying for all the company's construction, provided that they hit their job targets over the course of the rollout. Finally, there are as of right tax breaks involving Amazon in New York City. Isn't this also a failure of activists or people or anyone to give pushback to these political animals? I mean, if Cuomo knew that it was really dicey to offer these subsidies, I don't know if he would have done it. I don't remember Cynthia Nixon ever bringing it up in the election or 
uh, Molinaro in the general election. I just don't remember this being an issue. I don't remember Ocasio-Cortez saying it beforehand. There were a lot of community board meetings in Long Island City where they talked about the issue, and her district doesn't include Long Island City, but I just don't remember her or anyone making a big deal before it happened, and I gotta think that someone who reads the polls, like a Cuomo or a de Blasio, might have been affected had they had they done that. Well, yeah, there's a lot of opportunism here. I mean, I just came from this protest, and yes. I watched Jimmy Van Bremer, who's a councilman representing Long on Island the show, City, yeah. Senator Janaris. These guys signed a letter six months ago urging Amazon to relocate in Long Island City. So to now hear them get up and literally lead a chant of... Um, you know, do we want Amazon? No. Do we want Amazon? No. It's like, come on. You didn't know what you were getting into? But I like the fact that they're doing that just for negotiation purposes. I mean, this memorandum of understanding is not a contract, right? That's right. So there's still, I mean, I, I, I don't know to what extent the legislature will actually have the ability to, you know, hold Cuomo uh, up against the wall and say, here's what we want. Yeah. But I do think that they're wise to take this stance now and try and extract as much as they can from the company before they move here. Okay, let's talk about a couple of the other issues maybe that were brought up in the protest. It's going to make housing costs go through the roof, especially in Long Island City. Is that true? Probably not. The result, the the inputs here are a little complicated. On the one hand, as we've already discussed, 25,000 jobs over 10 years in a city the size of New York is ultimately kind of a drop in the bucket. Mm-hmm. While it might have a transformative effect on brownstones that are two blocks away from the HQ site, distributed over Queens, distributed over New York, probably not a huge effect. That said, one of the big arguments for these types of investments, which was made by de Blasio yesterday, among others, is that they have a multiplier effect. And so when people come in making $150,000 a year and they work at Amazon, if you're a chef or a dry cleaner or a nurse, uh, or a taxi driver, your income goes up too because mm-hmm. people near you are making more money and spending more money. Now, the research shows that that effect only holds up in slack housing markets. In tighter housing markets, uh, that effect can be counteracted by rising rents. And New York City, obviously, is a place where uh, the majority of people are renters yeah. and uh, rent stabilization is not the sort of lockdown system it was 20 years ago. And so I think people are people are worried. I was reading a report because after I talked about it on the show, I got a lot of uh, tweets and emails. Look at Seattle. Seattle's a disaster. I'm like, is it really a disaster? And there was one quote in a story of someone who sells, I don't know, she's like a merchant, maybe like artisanal soaps or something like that. And she said, yeah, my rent went from 500 to 1,000. But overall, I think it's good. I'm like, wow. (laughs) The other effects have to be really good to uh, counteract a rent that doubled since Amazon really started burgeoning. Which is what brings us back to what's so funny about all this, which is that the company itself is designed to circumvent those very local transactions that would be producing this economic multiplier effect. So in your case, uh, I mean, it's funny because the Amazon employees are no different from the rest of us. You know, they like buying local and you know, strolling through the shopping district as well. But the company that they run is doing quite a lot to subvert yeah. the ability of those local merchants to, to make a living. So anything that the protesters in Long Island City were saying that resonated with you that we haven't gotten to? I think the biggest thing is housing insecurity. I think that the typical understanding of the way this type of investment works and the reason that this whole the whole American urban idea is predicated on growth being good and not just good for the municipal tax rolls, but good for the people who live here, is the ability of people to harness and take part in the multiplier effect. 
And if you have a system where people don't feel like they have a stake in the local economy in New York, uh, that would happen, first of all, because they're not homeowners, so they don't stand to gain from any price increases. Uh, they may not be business owners, and they don't stand to gain from any increased foot traffic. I think the degree of housing secure insecurity in New York is such that it's very difficult for people to appreciate, uh, take advantage, see their own interests reflected in these types of investments, whether it's a bike lane, a grocery store, or a corporate headquarters. The fear is overwhelming and the fear is my rent's going to get too high. I'm going to have to move. And that over that overwhelms all other types of interest and decision making. And I think that's that's well founded. And I don't blame them for thinking that way. The fear is rational. You're saying. Yes. Uh, though. So then what's the solution? Not have wages rise, not have new industry. Cities without these housing problems are cities like Cleveland and Detroit, which, of course, are husks of former urban cores. Yeah, it's really cheap to live there. Well, so one reason I think Long Island City is a good place is it's by some measures the fastest growing neighborhood in America yeah. in terms of the number of new housing units coming online. And I would have loved to see Cuomo and de Blasio say, look, we know that we're bringing in 25,000 new high-income residents to your neighborhood, high-income workers to your neighborhood. And so we're going to make sure that there's enough housing units to meet that demand and that controls over rents are being enforced, bad landlords are being uh, taken to court and so forth. I think those types of reassurances would have been welcome. I think yeah. that the other thing they, they, they should do is really make sure that there is space in the zoning to build the apartments that these people are going to move into. Because if they don't move into these high rises in Long Island City along the waterfront, they're going to move to Sunnyside. They're going to move to Astoria. They're going to move to Elmhurst, Jackson Heights. And those are the neighborhoods where ideally we'd like to keep the Amazon workers out of there. <laughs> no matter what. Henry Grabar covers all sorts of stuff including, well, he's kind of, if Amazon's the everything store, he's the everything reporter, municipal issues and growth and infrastructure and transportation. He is sitting right at the nexus of all the things brought up by Amazon moving the Queens. Thank you, Henry. My pleasure, Mike. And now the spiel. A consortium of news organizations, including the AP and the Washington Post and the New York Times, NBC News, have come out in support of CNN's lawsuit against the White House to get reporter Jim Acosta re-credentialed. Even Fox News weighed in. Their president, Jay Wallace, supported the other news organizations, writing, Fox News supports CNN in its legal effort to regain its White House reporter's press credential. Secret service passes for White House journalists should never be weaponized. While we don't condone the growing antagonistic tone by both the president and the press at recent media avails, we do support a free press access and open exchanges for the American people. Now, a lot of attention has been paid to the inaccurate video of the incident that the White House retweeted and the White House's ridiculous defense that that video wasn't altered, but it was changed. Like much of the White House is nonfiction, but for the lies. Less attention has been paid to what a freewheeling slash chaotic circus of a press conference that Trump media availability after the election was and how Acosta, 
though impudent, wasn't at all out of step with nearly every other reporter in that press conference. Even reporters friendly toward Trump fed off the president's vibe and latitude. And they asked multi-part and follow-up questions. And they reacted to the president's interrupting them before they finished by actually insisting on finishing. It's all good journalism, by the way, especially insisting on getting your question out rather than allowing the public official to jump in and answer the question he thinks you'll ask or hopes you'll ask or pretends you asked. So let's let's review that press conference just to show what a setup job this was for Jim Acosta. It starts with John Roberts of Fox being the first to be called on. Whoa. I didn't know what happened. All right. Go ahead, John. That was a lot of hand shooting up so quickly. Roberts began with a long question that could be interpreted as a multi-parter. Mr. President, you talked at length just now about bipartisanship. Uh, The presumed Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, talked about it last night. I'm sure that's encouraging for the American people. But do you really believe, given what the relationship has been like between this White House and the Democratic Party, that that will happen? So that's one question. I think there's a very good chance. If I could just finish. It will happen. Will you have to compromise on certain issues to the point where it could hurt you in 2020? Now, that was a second question. And do you expect that when the Democrats take over the chairmanship of all these important committees, you're going to get hit with a blizzard of subpoenas on everything from the Russian investigation to your cell phone use to your tax returns? So that's a multi-part question. Next, after answering Fox News's question. Trump called on Major Garrett, formerly of Fox News, now with CBS. Uh, One question on the lame duck, sir, and one on your cabinet. Okay, so he's announcing he's going to ask a two-parter. You toyed with the idea during the campaign of a shutdown before the midterms in order to secure border wall funding. Are you prepared to go on a shutdown strategy during the lame duck since this might be your last best chance? Not necessarily. To secure that? So Trump answered that one question, maybe a multi-parter at length, and then Major Garrett posed a follow-up. But you want much more money, and you want much sooner. The money to build. The president gave a long twenty-five sentence answer, but Garrett kept asking questions. We need so no shutdown scenario. I don't know. So Garrett has now asked four questions. Then he goes on to a fifth. And can you give us clarity, sir, on your thinking currently now after the midterms about your attorney? How about your interior secretary? Uh, we're looking at that, and I want—I do want to study whatever is being said. Uh, is he in I think he's doing. I okay, he's Garrett doing has now asked his sixth and seventh question. We'll Listen, I am not complaining about anything that's gone on, except maybe the clarity of Trump's answers. But reporters asking a series of questions to get at answers works great for me. And it seemed clear that it was working for the press conference. This was the tone. These were the rules. You heard the first two reporters called on lots of questions. Third reporter called on was Jonathan Carl of ABC. He asks a two and a half parter. It was a half because the president did the thing where he began answering before Carl was done. Next up was a reporter who I couldn't identify. First, this reporter asks about Oprah. And he, it seemed like a joking question. The president chided him for being a comedian. But then gave a pretty long answer. And then the reporter asked a totally different question, or actually a series of questions in colloquy with the president. The, cr- the real question is, uh, you just sat up here and said that um, from this podium that it's, is, you're, are you offering a my way or highway scenario to the Democrats? You're saying no. that if, if, if they start investigating you, 
that you oh. can play that game oh, and yeah. investigate them. Better than them. Can you, com- can you compartmentalize that? And I that? think I know more than they know. Can you compartmentalize that and still continue to work with them for the benefit of the rest of the country? No. Or are you, are all bets off? No. If they do that, then it's just all it is is uh, a warlike posture. And yeah, so then, no. the, wait a minute, then the follow-up. I'm you sorry, heard, John. You heard my answer. Go well, ahead. Well, since it's Jim, I'll let it go. Okay. Since it's Jim, that Jim is Jim Acosta. As I have just documented, Jim Acosta was preceded by four different reporters asking somewhere between 15 and 18 questions. So that's around four questions per reporter. I'm not against that. I'm for that. Possibly Jim Acosta thought, okay, this is how the press conference is going to go. But we all know what happened with Jim Acosta. He asked the president about the caravan. The president rejected the premise. The president mocked Acosta. I think you should let me run the country. You run CNN. Right. And if you did it well, your ratings well, let me would be ask much you, better. If I, if so I maybe ask it was that he thought Acosta was rude. Maybe it was that Acosta stepped on the Trump zinger about CNN ratings. Likely it was a case that the fix was in. And Trump was just looking to tangle with Jim Acosta. But then Trump cuts him off. Are you worried? That's enough. That's Mr. enough. President, I, well, that's I was enough. going to ask one of the, the other folks. That's had, enough. Pardon me, ma'am. I'm, I'm, Mr. President, me. that's enough. Mr. President, I had one other Peter, question, if go. I may ask, on, on the Russia investigation. Are you concerned that, that you may have I'm not concerned about anything with you the may have Russian investigation because it's a hoax. Are you, that's enough. Put down the mic. And we know now that the president wants Acosta to put that mic down permanently. After Acosta's question, by the way, the president engaged in several exchanges with other reporters who asked three or four questions, ranging from one reporter asked, have you talked to Putin, to will you fire Kelly? One reporter asked about Trump's moral leadership. And just as with Acosta, the president did not at all engage with that. He started talking about China and trade. And so the reporter persisted. You're talking about the economic. Okay. How do you see your role as a moral leader? Ahead, Mr. Please. President, just Go how ahead, do you please, see your role please. as a moral leader? Go ahead. There's so many people. I'm sorry. As a moral leader, though. I, I think I am a great moral leader, and I love our country. That reporter was not punished. Good. None of these reporters should have been punished. We get the idea of the rules of the press conference. Everyone played by the rules. Jim Acosta was punished for them. Trump wants to make this a referendum on the impropriety of Jim Acosta. No one's buying that. It is such a bad faith and poorly executed effort to discredit this one reporter that you have to wonder if what the White House is doing is anything other than a distraction technique. Of course, by thinking in such a way is taking plain evidence that the administration is wrong, cruel, and incompetent and turning it into a higher-minded scheme, a stratagem, if you will. So are they bullies? Are they incompetent bullies? Or are they sneakily strategic, incompetent-seeming bullies? At the risk of asking a question and also a follow-up, who knows and who cares? And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by PRBNMA and Daniel Schrader. They think that Brad Hand could easily get a hit off Corey Spangenberg based on this one fact. Brad Hand's nickname is Brotein Shake. TJ Raphael is senior producer of Slate Podcasts. She thinks the Democrats need either a woman of color, a man of pallor, or a person of interest to beat Trump. The gist. I must object to Corey Spangenberg's nickname. It is Spangy. I do not like when they mix the hard G with the soft G 
from the nickname to the actual name. And what I say goes because I am the adjudicator. Boom, peru, depru, dupru, and thanks for listening. Did you see this thing about the new attorney general? Oh, the acting attorney general, oh, yeah. Whitaker? Whitaker? Yeah, what about him? In November 2014, a Miami Beach-based firm, World Patent Marketing, announced the marketing launch of a, quote, masculine toilet, which <sighs> boasted a specially designed bowl to help well-endowed men avoid unwanted contact with porcelain or water. <laughs> the average male genitalia. Big dick toilets. <laughs> big, <laughs> big dick Johns. You need a big dick bowl. You don't want no little boy toilet. Potty, potty, potty. You need a big ten Iowa Hawkeye bald six foot four big dick bowl. Big dick bowl. We're doing this. This is what we're gonna start the show with. Oh, I think we're gonna start the show with this. Big dick bowl. Just ask Matthews, twenty-nine, former Big Ten Rose Bowl tight end. Hi. You're like me when you're making a dookie. You don't want your pee-pee to touch the porcelain. The big dick bowl. Are you the kind of man who always uses the handicap urinal just because that's where your member lies naturally? You need big dick bowl. Big dick bowl no longer approved by the FCC.